This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome back to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility, focusing on dancers and other aesthetic athletes. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, here with the founder of the Bendy Bodies podcast, Dr. Linda Bluestein. Our goal is to bring you up-to-date information to help you live your best life. Please remember to always consult with your own healthcare team before making any changes to your routine. Our guest today is our very own Dr. Linda Bluestein, founder of Bendy Bodies and co-host of the podcast. So welcome, Dr. <laughs> Bluestein. <laughs> so nice to see you, Jen. <laughs> um, I love when we do the ones where we talk to each other because we never get a chance to just sit and chat with each other. So I'm really excited about doing this and it's going to be a great topic today that I know a lot of people are asking about. So everyone knows that you're the founder and the co-host of Bendy Bodies, but not everyone may have heard your own health journey story. So could you share with us your own road to being diagnosed with EDS? Sure. So I knew very little about EDS working as an anesthesiologist and, you know, I'd gone through medical school, of course, residency, et cetera, but I still didn't know much about it. And I was diagnosed with something called a Tarlov cyst, which is where there's a weakness in the um, lining surrounding the nerves. And so you get a bulging of these nerves and it can compress the other nearby nerves and cause sciatic type pain. And I had this terrible sciatica type pain didn't go away for quite a long time. And that was the first time that I really heard about EDS. As I was reading more about Tarlov cyst and trying to understand more about this diagnosis that I had and how it might be affecting my symptoms, I started reading that this is something that happens commonly in people with connective tissue disorders. And as I started digging into that a little bit more, I was like, oh, I wonder if this could explain some of the other things that I've experienced. For example, I've had problems with ulcers on my cornea, which is kind of an unusual thing, especially the way they came about. Um, I've also had a problem with, this is what led to really my um, having to leave the operating room. I had a huge cyst inside a bone in my wrist and I had to have bone grafting surgery, which led to a complication called CRPS. And so these were a lot of things that you know, kind of unusual. And as I started reading more, I was like, well, these maybe could be pointing to a connective tissue disorder. And the first rheumatologist that I saw um, was, I'll just say, was a jerk, um, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, looked at me like, you want to have something wrong with you? And it was like, uh, no, I don't want to have something wrong with me. I want to know why all of these things are happening. And for years, I'd been telling my primary care doctor and my other doctors, I think something there's something wrong with me. I get injured doing everyday things. I don't heal properly. Um, I knew that I had difficulty building muscle mass and um, keeping my body strong. And so I kind of knew something was going on, but it wasn't until I was in my mid to late forties that I actually, I guess, mid forties, when I actually got the diagnosis of hypermobile EDS. Since that time, numerous other family members have been diagnosed with hypermobile EDS. Ironically, some from listening to the podcast. 
Um, I try because I bring it up so often in conversations. I try, you know, not to talk about it too, too much. So, but some of them have listened to the podcast and been like, Hey, you know, so, um, it's something that definitely has helped a number of us now that we understand the connections. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how all of that evolved. Um, I had to leave the operating room because of my you know, problems with my wrist. I was no longer to do that job, but then trying to figure out how to help other people. I opened my clinic. I started um, my first podcast was the hypermobility happy hour, which I co-founded. Um, and that was the first podcast surrounding joint hypermobility. And now there's actually several podcasts that are kind of related to this topic. And of course, um, now I'm thrilled to be working with you on Bendy Bodies. I think it's a great marriage of the connections that I have and the, and the, and the perspective that I bring and the perspective that you bring and the connections that you have, um, because you and I have such complementary um, skill sets. So I think it's a really cool project and it's been a lot of fun and, and, we keep hearing from people that we're helping them. So, so that's the best part. Well, I agree. I think a lot of people are getting helped by what we do, which is of course the whole reason that we do it and share our own stories, which can be, can be hard sometimes. So our whole conversation today is centering around seeking a diagnosis. Um, but before we get into that, could you go over the different types of connective tissue disorders and, and what might lead to a diagnosis for them? Sure. So, so not all connective tissue disorders are hereditary. That's the first thing that's important to know. And connective tissue disorders are usually related to the proteins, the collagen and elastin, and the extracellular matrix like fibrillin and other things that are involved in forming connective tissue, which is present in our ligaments and our tendons and, and basically all throughout the body. We have connective tissue everywhere in the body. That's what's connecting everything to everything else. Um, the hereditary disorders of connective tissue include Marfan syndrome, osteogenesis imperfecta, Louis Dietz, Stickler syndrome, and the one that I generally focus on the most because number one, it's the most that I know about. And number two, it's the one that affects the most numbers of people um, are the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. And we know now that there are 14 different subtypes of Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. And when I'm working with my patients, I really try to focus on the big picture of the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes because of the fact that um, the criteria may change over time. And we know that there are the 2017 criteria that were um, established by the International Consortium, but that may be revisited. The hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is the most common type by far. It accounts for 80 to 90% of cases of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And we know that that is the only type that does not yet have a genetic marker. There is um, a group at MUSC working on um, the Norris lab that is working on finding um, genetic markers. And they have found a candidate gene for hypermobile EDS. They will be publishing about this um, hopefully fairly soon. Um, once they are able to do so, that'll be really exciting. Um, and also the EDS Society is working on the, um, the hedge study where they're also collecting um, large large numbers of patients to do genetic analysis and they're working to find other genes as well. Because most of us that work in this space, we do believe that it's not one gene that accounts for the clinical picture, the phenotype that we see hypermobile EDS. So right now, 
right now diagnosing hypermobile EDS is based on clinical criteria. And there is a worksheet that can be found on the Ehlers-Danlos Society website. There's also a link on my website to that worksheet. And otherwise the blood test can be done um, to rule out you know, some of the other genetic disorders, um, you know, you can do a blood test to rule out the other types of Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. The um, blood test and DNA test can be used to rule out Marfan syndrome and, and the other hereditary disorders of connective tissue. So what I just heard was a very great answer that boils down to there's not one thing. <laughs> so anybody who's looking for a finger prick and a 10 minute test to tell them, guess what? You've got this. That's, that's not the way that it goes. It's a, it's a complicated path, which is why we want to talk about it and why so many people get frustrated with it. Um, I know that the topic of getting a diagnosis for EDS, especially hypermobile EDS, um, can be very divisive and people have strong opinions on it. Um, why might a medical, medical staff or a medical professional specifically encourage someone to seek a diagnosis? So once a person has a diagnosis, there might be some things that they could have access to that they would not have access to otherwise. For example, school accommodations. A lot of school-age um, students can really have a lot of difficulty with day-to-day -day functioning. So it can be very beneficial for them to have accommodations so that they are able to perform their best in, in school. So having a diagnosis can be very important for that. For people that are working, and we want to keep people working as much as we possibly can. Working is so important for our, our sense of purpose in life and meaning and um, so much of who we are as human beings. And so it can be very helpful to have the diagnosis for work accommodations. I have to confess, when I first was having my own health problems, I had no idea that my employer even had any obligation whatsoever to do reasonable accommodations for me. And it wasn't until, you know, much later that I found out, well, what is that? What exactly does that mean? And basically what that means is that if you are working for the Mayo Clinic, their degree to which they need to accommodate people with disabilities is significantly greater than if you're working for, you know, me with my tiny little micro practice. I am not expected to build ramps and all kinds of other things, but if you're Mayo Clinic, you're a massive institution, you are expected to accommodate people with, with disabilities. So uh, it's important to know for those things. It's also important for insurance coverage. So for example, if you have a diagnosis of EDS, you may be able to get more visits for physical therapy. And you also may be able to get insurance coverage for out-of-network providers if you don't have an in-network specialist for EDS. So I have had some patients get really good success with getting coverage with visits from me, even though I'm out of network for them, because they can demonstrate that there is no in-network provider for EDS. And so therefore they can get coverage. Sometimes you can also get better access to um, referrals. And, and those are very important because EDS does not belong to any one specialist. That's part of the difficulty. It's not it's not like it is a solo neurologic condition. So it's, it belongs to the neurologist. It's not solo an autoimmune condition where therefore it would belong to rheumatology. Um, probably the closest specialty to which EDS would belong, hypermobile EDS, I should say specifically, would be um, physical medicine and rehabilitation. Um, a lot of us believe that that specialty is probably the best suited 
to taking care of those patients. Geneticists, of course, are also extremely important, especially for the other subtypes of EDS besides the hypermobile type. That makes sense. And as you said, again, it's, it, there's not one specific person, right? So it gets complicated. Um, so on the flip side of that, why might some medical professionals discourage someone from pursuing a diagnosis? So I often will talk to people, if, even if I suspect that they have hypermobile EDS, and I will let them know that this could have significant implications when it comes to life insurance. We know that hypermobile EDS does not impact lifespan. It greatly impacts quality of life, but in general, for most people, it does not impact life expectancy, but insurance companies are not at the point yet where they're making that distinction, at least often this is the case. So sometimes if a person does not have that diagnosis yet, um, I will ask them, you know, do you feel like you have adequate life insurance? Because I don't want to put this on your record unless I know that you feel comfortable in that regard. And also the other thing that I would mention is um, medical insurance, that if you, if you work for an employer, then it's easier. But if you are self-employed or, um, you know, just shopping on the marketplace, then, um, and I'm not an insurance expert, but so, you know, everyone needs to do their own due diligence here, but, you know, things are constantly changing in the insurance space. And so if you have a pre-existing condition that can impact, you know, your ability to get coverage. So um, those are a couple of reasons why I would maybe discourage someone from pursuing a diagnosis. The other reason I would say is I always ask people, why, why is this important to you? And it would depend on their reasoning. If they feel like they are doing really well, they feel like they're doing all the right things. They feel like they don't need it for validation. They don't really need it to access referrals and and things like that. Then oftentimes they say, okay, I don't think you need to pursue a diagnosis. I think you can continue to do what you're doing. You're doing the right things already. And so maybe, you know, hold off on doing that. The last thing I want to add under that is that every single type of specialist needs to know about these conditions because most of us that work in this space do believe that hypermobile EDS, and if you don't fit that clinical um, criteria, but you have a picture that looks like that, then now the default diagnosis is hypermobility spectrum disorders. If you fall into either one of those categories, we know that those seem to be getting more common. And they also seem to be much more prevalent than what we originally thought. And therefore, you know, these people are presenting to all types of specialists. So it doesn't matter what type of um, medical practice you have, you need to know about these conditions. Yeah, that's fair. And I can, I can see the reasoning, as you said, for both encouraging and discouraging from a medical point of view. So on the other side of the prescription pad, um, you and I have both spoken to a lot of people who have said that having a diagnosis made them feel affirmed, like they're finally being told it's not in their head. And you even said that earlier in our discussion today. I I know something's wrong with me. I just want to know what it is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So keeping that in mind, what are some reasons um, a person, an individual might pursue a diagnosis? So it is very, very validating. I know for me personally and professionally, when I have, you know, given people this diagnosis, Um, they feel like, okay, I'm not crazy. And it is amazing what happens when you, you realize that because it's so, so common for many of us, myself included to have experienced medically induced trauma, meaning that you've gone to appointments and they've been traumatic for you. 
And that's all I mean when I say medically induced trauma, you've gone to an appointment or you've had a procedure or whatever, something didn't go well. And, and that then that, that person dismissing your symptoms can cause you to have self-doubt. It can activate your sympathetic nervous system and actually worsen the symptoms that brought you there in the first place. For example, pain, disordered sleep, palpitations, anxiety, et cetera. And that exacerbation of those symptoms can cause problems in your closest relationships. Um, you can, you can end up getting so obsessive with your symptoms because you know, something is wrong and you just don't know what it is that the people around you feel, you know, they, they kind of push you away and it's, and it can become very isolating. And we know that isolation is a very bad thing. Um, it's, it's really so important to be connected with other people and have support. And um, we know that that love and fear are opposites of each other. And when we're in that fear part of our brain, that reptilian part of our brain, that exacerbates our symptoms. On the other side, if we feel loved and cared for by our providers and our friends and our family, then that can really help lessen our symptoms. Yeah. I can, I can definitely see that. So um, looking at all of that, would there be reasons that someone personally might not want a diagnosis then? I think that's a highly personal thing. I think that th there definitely are people that I have um, seen as patients and I've discussed with them, you know, I always discuss at the very, very beginning, what is your goal? Because most of these people I could talk to for days and not get to the bottom of everything that would be important to talk about. So it's really important to know what their goal is. And for a lot of the people, it is to have a diagnosis. Every once in a while, though, I, I get people that they really don't want the, a diagnosis. They want a comprehensive treatment plan. They want to know what are the things that they can do, but they, but they actually don't want the label. Um, and I think that's really fabulous if they can have that intuition that for them, having a label is actually not going to be helpful and could potentially be harmful. Yeah, I could see that. And as you said, it is very individualized. Um, so everybody is going to have to make the, the choice that they think is best. Um, and most people will feel pretty strongly one way or the other, which, which direction they want to go. So we've, we've talked about the different angles of having a diagnosis, sort of the pros and cons from both sides of the table. So let's assume that someone does want a diagnosis um, and you've shared there's, there's really no one clear path to getting a diagnosis. So how would someone start? Yeah, that's a really good question. So oftentimes this is raised by someone's physical therapist. Um, that is a very, very common thing. And I do find that physical therapists are much more knowledgeable about hypermobility than, than most physicians are. So oftentimes the physical therapist will say to you, gosh, you really are actually my, that was kind of how it was first raised to me as I think about it. I mean, I was having this in my own mind, but one of my physical therapists had pointed that out many of my physicians had pointed out that I had elbow hyper, severe elbow hyperextension. They had pointed out that I had extreme neck range of motion, but they never said anything about what that might mean. In fairness to them, they probably also didn't know awareness about EDS, you know, definitely has grown over the, over the years for, for sure. In terms of where someone would start, um, I would say that it's important to have one person in your corner, and that could be your primary care provider. That could be um, one of your specialists. 
that could start with your physical therapist. Your physical therapist will do an assessment and they will make, they will make notes. They will, they will put things on your record in terms of what they're, what they found on their assessment. But in terms of ICD-10 codes, those do have to come from a physician or, or now a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. So if your physical therapist is um, somebody that is knowledgeable about other providers in the community, they could maybe point you in the direction of a primary care provider, or maybe there is a rheumatologist who is interested in these conditions. A lot of rheumatologists, you know, they're so highly focused on autoimmune disorders that they're not as interested in EDS. Um, so by you, you don't want to automatically assume that someone that is a rheumatologist is going to be super interested, even though they deal with a lot of joint type issues. Um, so it's really kind of finding that person who, you know, really will take an interest in you, will take the time. Um, and also for you to explain that I don't expect to have this accomplished in one visit. If you're working within the traditional healthcare system, um, physicians are paid based on number of patients seen in a day and procedures and surgeries, basically by insurance companies. That's what insurance companies value. So in a lot of practices, they are seeing very large numbers of patients in a day. They might be seeing 30, 40, 50, 60. I've heard of doctors seeing 80 patients in a day. I cannot even imagine. If you think about that worksheet, there is no way that someone is going to be able to take the time to do that in a, you know, a 10 minute visit. It's just physically, it's physically impossible to do that responsibly. So I think it's um, important to build the relationship and to say, this is something that I have thought about. I'm wondering if it might apply to me. You could take in the worksheet. You could take in an article or something that, that you have found um, online. Maybe you found it on the Ehlers-Danlos Society website. And with a couple of things highlighted, don't get too crazy. Just, you know, um, more sparing information is better. And, and then let them know that this is something that you would like to discuss at a future visit. And would they be open to that? That's, that's great advice. Um, and so, so building on that, um, let's assume as with this person who is seeking a diagnosis, um, let's assume that, that no one in their medical area is that a connective tissue specialist. Yeah. So um, what, what possible specialties, as you've mentioned earlier, might be likely to recognize connective tissue disorders, if you can expand on that a little bit, like where would they go next? As you mentioned, rheumatologist, what others? Sure. So it's always surprising to me. I had a patient the other day who shared with me that she has an amazing gastroenterologist who's very aware of EDS, aware of mast cell activation syndrome. And I was so excited because she is in a local area to me. And I always love to have more and more resources. So um, I was very happy to hear about that. If you are seeing, for example, a cardiologist for your POTS, which um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, they may be more aware of EDS because of the fact that there's such significant overlap between POTS and EDS. Now, some cardiologists are not good at really recognizing or treating POTS at all. Other cardiologists are really um, knowledgeable about POTS, but they may be treating it as a cardiovascular condition and not the neurologic condition that it, that it truly is. If you're seeing a neurologist for POTS, which if I have my choice, that's where I usually send people is to a neurologist for POTS. Um, if I feel that they need, you know, really uh, a lot more than what I can offer 
in terms of POTS treatment, I refer them to some of the neurologists who are really super fabulous in this area. And, and they are, of course, you know, knowledgeable about EDS, again, because of the overlap. Some allergy and immunology doctors are quite knowledgeable because of the mast cell activation syndrome patients that they may be seeing. But again, if you're a very um, you know, traditionally trained allergy immunology doctor, I, I know some, they do not acknowledge mast cell activation as a, as a condition. And then there are some oncologists who, who treat mast cell activation syndrome. And so they might be more knowledgeable, um, physical medicine and rehab, as I mentioned, that might be a good, um, specialty to, to pursue, especially because they would be a type of, um, doctor to be really working with you in terms, in terms of improving your physical functioning. Okay. All right. So, um, you, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but I want to circle back to it. Um, if a person has an appointment with a doctor that they've heard is, is open to learning about things outside their field, or, um, seems to be interested in investing in, in their patients. Um, if it's a, a GP or an internist, something along those lines, is there, is there anything that, that the patient can do to prepare or to bring to that meeting to help them get the most out of the meeting? You talked about the handouts and the, the sparse highlighting. Um, are there any other steps that they can take to be ready when they walk into that meeting? Sure. So the EDS Society, the Ehlers-Danlos Society has great resources on their website and they have the papers from the 2017 American Journal of Genetics, they have a lot of those papers also um, in, in layman's language. Now, of course, your, your physician doesn't need it in layman's language. However, they are abbreviated in that um, capacity, and that might be a good place to start with your primary care provider or one of your specialists. And I highly recommend you know, printing that, printing those up. I would print two copies. So you have a copy and your doctor has a copy, highlight the relevant, um, you know, sentences, just a very small number, not the whole thing. You know, I have a tendency to do that. Sometimes <laughs> my family makes fun of me because my books, the whole things are highlighted and there's sticky notes all over the place. Um, you want to keep it very sparing. Um, and there also were um, new papers that were published in the 2021 American Journal of Genetics that came out, I believe it was November. There's a whole series of articles about Ehlers-Danlos that are, you know, of course, four years newer than what they published in 2017. They're a little bit different than what was published in 2017. So some of the 2017 papers are still super, super um, important because they address things in a, in a little bit different way. So I think those are some really great resources. And if someone is looking to dive a little bit deeper into this topic, I have created a course that I'm just going to give a quick plug for a course that I created with um, Kia Steel, Hell's Bells and Mast Cells. If someone is interested in kind of diving deeper into how to work with your doctor to get more out of your medical appointments, if you have a complex illness or you, you know, are, are needing a lot of medical care. So that's great. Um, I know that I know that there's a fine line between like feeling like I know there's something wrong with me and I want to find out what it is and and it becoming an obsession and you, you visit 20 doctors and they're all like, no, no, no. Um, so you want to walk that line for your physical health and also for your mental health. And sometimes it's hard to know where to stop. And and you and I have interviewed and heard from so many um, amazing people who have told these stories over and over again about how I knew something was wrong with me. I just didn't know what it was and how 
their their individual journeys to getting a diagnosis um, were so different, but all of them had that common thread of, I knew something was wrong. And when the doctor said nothing was wrong, I knew they were wrong. Uh, and just trying to... <laughs> trying to get there. But at the same time, we want to be, um, we want to be realistic and not become obsessive about it. So, so if a couple of doctors have been seen, no one agrees, agrees with, with your, with the, the patient's gut instinct that they have a connective tissue disorder. Um, where can this person go from there? And, and how long do you encourage someone to keep trying for a diagnosis, realizing that once they meet you, you know, that's, that's great. And that's the end point. And they, they probably will get that diagnosis, but how long would you encourage someone to sort of keep going for that? Yeah, that's a, that is such a good question because one of the, um, th there's a, an institution that I'm aware of that has a program for managing chronic pain. It's like a, a resident program. You stay there for several weeks. And one of the things that they tell you is stop chasing diagnoses, stop going to doctors, stop, stop, stop. And I understand kind of why they say that, but at the same time, I think it's, it, it's really hard because a lot of people, they, they have been dismissed. They have been disregarded. They have not been listened to. So I would go back to, you know, again, what are your reasons? What are, what are your goals? Why is it that this is something that you feel that you really need? Because there was a paper that just came out, um, I believe it was August of, of this year, looking at muscle mass and people with HEDS and HSD and uh, muscle strength. And, and basically, their, one of their conclusions was treat people with HSD and EDS, hypermobile EDS, the same, which I would say not just for the muscle strength part, but most of us, I think, treat those two conditions pretty much the same. Um, so in terms of getting a diagnosis specific to EDS, I, I would say, you know, keep that in mind. The other thing is there is an ICD-10 code for hypermobility syndromes. And I do sometimes see people, um, I just saw someone a couple of days ago, actually, that had a diagnosis from another provider that was something like hypermobility, the, the way they fully wrote it out was something like hypermobility related joint pain or something like that. Um, so, you know, maybe your provider is willing to write something like that. Just make sure they don't write benign joint hypermobility because that is like, as soon as people see the word benign, even though benign really in general means, but means not cancer. But if people see the word benign, oftentimes they think that it means that it's, it's an innocent thing. It, does, it doesn't cause any problems. The other thing that I want to mention is it's really important to be aware of confirmation bias and, and, and medical student syndrome. So as when I was a medical student, things were completely different. We didn't have this crazy access to the internet. We didn't have, you know, people um, that could themselves look up all this information, read all these studies. And so this was really known as medical student um, syndrome, but now it's kind of anybody's, it could be anybody's syndrome, um, but hypochondriasis, you know, what, what can happen is we can read these things and we get confirmation bias. If we see a list of 20 things and we have eight of those things, we'll be like, yep, 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 yep. And we can end up thinking, I must have this, even though maybe what you have is something different. So it's important to keep in mind that um, I would say that if you think something is wrong with you, you're, you're probably right. Um, I had somebody tell me once, I feel like I'm dying. This was when I was um, uh, when I was at Mayo as an intern. And, and I took that very seriously. It was an inpatient in the hospital. And he, he was like, I don't have chest pain. I don't have shortness of breath. I don't know what it is, but I feel like I'm dying. And I'm like, okay, this has got to be something something is going on here. And it turned out he had methemoglobinemia 
long story, but anyway, um, he was right. He, he, he was dying and there was actually a very easy fix for what he had. We gave him the, the antidote methylene blue and he, and he was fine. So I do believe that people know their bodies really well, but I think we have to be very careful with the information that we read. Nowadays, we could spend 24 seven reading things online. And we need to remember that the people who spend more time online in general are people who are not doing as well. So when I first was having issues with Tarlov, my Tarlov cyst, I, I did try to remind myself, but it was hard, that the people on the Tarlov cyst listserv were people that were having a lot of problems. And the people who had Tarlov cysts who were out doing their thing and happy and having no problems, they're not hanging out online. So I think that's just another important thing for, for us to remember. That's very true. And and the internet, as we know and see so often, is that double-edged sword. Um, it's a great place to get information that we used to have to go to a library and look up and mm-hmm. scroll through the microfiche or, or flip open an actual encyclopedia. So we have so much information at our fingertips, but also there's no guarantee that, that number one, that information is right. And number two, mm-hmm. the sample that you come across is an accurate sample of everyone. So you join... Um, or you, you lurk in a connective tissue disorder group and you hear all of these horrible things um, because perhaps these are the people who need support and they need to talk to each other. And as you said, the people who have connective tissue disorders who are doing just fine and not having so many issues are out there living their life and may not need that group. So you may not realize that it's not an accurate representation of every person with a connective tissue disorder. So yeah, it's important to remember that um, even as you and I work on the internet, <laughs> and that's where we put our information, but that's, that's one of the reasons we do it is we want to help people find accurate information and, and sort of see a reasonable presentation of that information and not um, hopefully a bias in one way or the other. <laughs> and, and it's so important what you just said, because the, source of the information is so, so important. So, you know, oftentimes I have people send me things or ask about things and and they're totally not credible at someone trying to sell some crazy thing or, you know, it, you can, I think you, if you wanted to find something that says that popcorn causes cancer, I think you could type that into Google and you could find somebody saying that popcorn causes cancer. So I think we need to be careful about our search terms also and try not to lead the witness, so to speak. If we're trying to look something up, I think it's important to to type that search term in and or when you find the resources to just be very careful about what you read. I would agree with that. Um, And we have covered a whole bunch around sort of seeking a diagnosis, whether or not um, different reasons that medical professionals may or may not encourage it and different reasons people themselves may or may not want it. And um, you've given us so much information about how to start seeking that diagnosis because it's such a complicated path with so many different ways to kind of get there and no one sure hypermobility 101, here we are, come to us for your 10 minute finger prick and find out that, that, that whether or not you have this. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add that we didn't have a chance to cover yet? I did want to just briefly mention a couple of um, myths. One is that um, because of the fact that Ehlers-Danlos syndromes are genetic, I have heard other colleagues say that if someone is not diagnosed with EDS in childhood, they must not have the condition. And yeah, I literally, I, I presented myself, I I took a risk and I presented myself at a, um, one of these 
uh, collaboration meetings where you discuss like difficult pain patients. And I told them about my diagnosis, blah, blah, blah. And they said, are you sure? Because if you're not, you know, that's a genetic disorder. And it was like, really? Because, you know, as you get older, as you get older, we know that um, your collagen is less strong and, and healing isn't as good. And so it's not surprising that some of these things will, will come out more with age. And also I had symptoms since I was a baby. I didn't really go into those um, details, but I had lots and lots of symptoms in childhood as a teenager, et cetera. Um, the other thing that I would like to mention is that the, the, the whole idea that these are quote invisible illnesses, I think is really so ironic because yes, I think there is a certain aspect that's, that's invisible, but they're also incredibly visible. Like you can see if someone is hypermobile, <laughs> right. I mean, you and I can like pick them out from, you know, a mile away. Right. Um, and then, and then also there's a lot of the other features of hypermobility disorders or connective tissue disorders, not that those are interchangeable terms, but there are some features that are, that are quite visible. So it's important to, to keep that in mind. Um, and then the last thing that I wanted to mention is just that people are very heterogeneous in their presentation. So it's important to know that if, if you think that you have hypermobile EDS or you, you know someone that has hypermobile EDS and someone else has it, they're not necessarily going to look identical. And this is why we think that there's probably multiple different um, genes that are responsible for creating this phenotype the phenotype being the clinical signs and symptoms that we see, and the genotype being the genes that underlie the, that phenotype. And we know that, you know, uh, in medicine, what do we look for? We look for patterns. If you hear the word syndrome, it means pattern. We, you know, we are looking at, okay, this person has this pattern that fits this best. Oftentimes we'll have a working diagnosis and we'll have a differential diagnosis, meaning that this is what we think the person has right now. Maybe these are the things that alternative explanations, that's what the differential diagnosis is. And the last thing that I wanted to mention is just that keeping in mind that caring for hypermobile EDS, um, HSD patients is very time consuming. And as I mentioned earlier with insurance, it is very challenging because they, they recognize numbers and procedures. So there are a lot of us that do take care of this population of people. And we, and we wish that we could work within an insurance system, but we know that we can't do our job the way we want to and really take care of our patients the way we want to. And, and that's why we do it the way we do. So. Yeah. And, and, and that's a whole other conversation that we could have about trying to navigate the, uh, the medical insurance field right. um, and, and all of the issues that come along with that, that I know even our listeners could tell us hours and hours of stories about, because it's difficult. As you said, it's complicated, but nothing about connective tissue disorders is necessarily straightforward. Um, so we're grateful that you are sharing your, your expertise and your, your um, wisdom on this subject with us. Um, so if people wanted to get in touch with you and um, learn more about what you do or set up time to work with you, for those of the, uh, for those of the people out here there who don't know, how can they reach out to you? So the best place to go is to my website, which is www.hypermobilitymd.com. And um, from there, you can see kind of what the different options are. I do workshops. I do want, I work one-on-one -on -one with people. And I also share a lot of free information, obviously through the podcast, um, but through <laughs> lots of other social media 
um, outlets as well. I, I'm on Instagram a lot, um, also on Twitter, Facebook, um, LinkedIn. Those are probably the main places. Um, but start with my website. That's the best place to kind of get a good overall picture. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I know our listeners, I'm sure, follow you on Bendy Bodies, Instagram, Bendy underscore bodies, but you also have your own um, page on Instagram hyper, at hypermobilitymd, um, where people can also and should subscribe and get all of the great information from you that way as well. Um, well, you have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Um, today, we have been speaking with Dr. Linda Bluestein, the actual Hypermobility MD herself. So thank you so much, Dr. Bluestein, for sharing your information with us and, um, and letting us hear from you on this really important topic. Absolutely. It was great to, great to chat with you. And I, I hope that a lot of people find this helpful. And of course, we love to hear from our listeners about what, what do they want to hear about? What are they finding helpful? We, we love getting those messages. So I would encourage anyone listening to this episode that has things that they want to share with us, please don't hesitate to reach out. Info at bendybodies.org is the best email to use, but you could also reach us on our Instagram page as well. Absolutely. So um, until next time, thank you everybody for listening and we will see you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other aesthetic athletes. If you found this information valuable, please share it with a colleague or friend and leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at bendy underscore bodies and our website is www.bendybodies.org. If you want to follow Bendy Bodies founder and co-host Dr. Bluestein on Instagram, it's at hypermobilitymd, all one word, and her website is www.hypermobilitymd.com. If you want to follow co-host Jennifer Milner on Instagram, it's at jennifer.milner, M-I-L-N-E-R, and her website is www.jennifer-milner.com. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. We want to hear from you. Please email us at info at bendybodies.org to share feedback. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-host and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This information is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease as this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please refer to your local qualified health practitioner for all medical concerns. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies Podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.